So, uh, <clears throat> here is a diagram, and I put it on the whiteboard because at my age I'm somewhat uh, illiterate when it comes to computer hardware. I do fairly well with software. But the fact that it's over there and we go on to other things here, that will stay, and we're going to refer to that. This is a very helpful illustration. And we don't have any handouts, but I'd encourage you just take a piece of paper and write this down. It's a very simplistic diagram of culture. And there are four layers of culture, and we need to understand this. There's the outer layer of behavior, customs, habits, the things that we do. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have been on short-term trips to various places. You go to another country and you see the people of wherever you've gone to, well, they dress a little bit differently, they eat a little bit differently, they greet each other differently, and so forth. That's the visible layer of culture. They come to the United States, uh, and they see that we don't act quite like them. I remember one day my wife and I had gone to Durban, South Africa, for a big conference, uh, we were met at the airport by a van to take a whole bunch of us to the hotel. And on another plane had come in a bunch of Americans who had flown all the way from the U.S. to Durban. That's a long flight. And there was one surgeon who was flat out. I mean, he hadn't slept and he was exhausted. And so he immediately went to the van opened the right front door, plopped in the seat, and went to sleep. And the driver kind of looked at him and said, Sir, uh, I think you need to wake up. You're sitting in my seat. <laughs> in South Africa, they drive on the left-hand side of the road, and the steering wheel is over here. And this poor, exhausted surgeon never even noticed that the steering wheel was sitting in front of him. He was in his normal seat that he would get in in Boston, and there he was. Well, that's the outer layer of culture. Pardon me? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and we say, of course, in South Africa and England, they drive on the wrong side of the road, but there are different opinions about that. Where does behavior come from? Behavior comes from our values. This doesn't come out of the blue. But we do what we do out here because we think it's good for us. And we have many, many values. And values like trust and integrity and accountability, responsibility, hard work we consider to be of great value. Uh, and a host of values that influence how we act, even influence how we greet one another. Uh, we shake hands in our culture. Why? What does this mean? This started, I guess, back in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, before you were, either you or I were born. Uh, I have no knife in my hand. This was back in the days when there was a fair bit of, you know, violence and fighting and the Vikings and all of that sort of stuff. And so you come up to someone in the forest and they put out their hand and it's empty. Well, you know, it's safe. In Africa, we actually shake hands this way. I don't have a knife in either hand. <laughs> well, that's because peace Friendship, relationships are of value, and we want to show that. You go to Thailand, and you do this. Now, what does this mean? Respect. I, my head is bowing to your heart. 
Well, you can shake hands with people in Thailand. They're used to Americans coming through, but that's not the way they do it. And if you want to be really accepted and well thought of, well, learn to do this. I had real troubles because everywhere I went, I had a satchel or something. You can't do this. You've got to put that down before you do this, and sometimes that was a little difficult. But anyway, uh, our behavior is influenced by this. Where do our values come from? They come from our beliefs. Beliefs about all kinds of different things. Uh, beliefs about family, beliefs about our country, uh, uh, work and family and children and so forth and so on. And what we believe to be true affects what we believe to be good, and that determines our behavior. But at the very center is what we call our worldview. And our worldview is way down deep inside. It's way down deep inside in all people. It's assumptions about reality. It's assumptions about who we are as persons. Assumptions about gender. And they differ radically among different cultures. Assumptions about nature. What is nature like? Uh, what is our relationship with our natural environment? And assumptions about God. Who is God? We all have fairly similar assumptions about God. We're all evangelical Christians or Christians. Uh, you know, that's basically our worldview, the Christian world, biblical worldview. Assumptions about God in a Muslim culture are very different. Uh, assumptions about God in an animistic culture are even more radically different. So, but this is where everything starts or where everything centers. Because our assumptions on this level determine our beliefs, that determine our values, that influence our behavior. So <clears throat> we need to understand this. This is just a summary of what I've said. But what's important is that cultures function from the inside out. The real stuff is here, and that influences what happens in these areas. Now, <clears throat> we have a problem when it comes to community health education. We actually have the same problem when it comes to evangelism or other forms of education or whatever it may be. We are accustomed to doing our health education from the outside in. We present rules, say you should do this, you should not do that. We base those rules on values. You should not do such and such because it's bad for your health. You should wash your hands because it will prevent diseases. It's good for your health. And we take for granted that the people whom we're talking to have similar beliefs and assumptions that we have and therefore will quickly understand what we're telling them, and that's a false assumption. <clears throat> they don't have the same assumptions about God, life, and about where diseases come from. And in other cultures around the world, Muslim cultures, Hindu cultures, Buddhist cultures, and the extremely widespread global animistic cultures, uh, they think they assume different things than we do. And that's why so much of what we do in this fashion doesn't work. Uh, 
it's extremely difficult getting people to change behavior in any culture. And we do this very poorly in the United States. Uh, just do this, don't do that, say no to drugs and so forth and so on. Say no to sex before marriage because it's, uh, you know, that's good for your health or sex before marriage is bad for your health. This is where we're functioning and that really doesn't work. Much of our moral education, our ethical education is just on these levels. We seldom, if ever, get to that level, but that is the key level where we have to start. And so you go to Cambodia and you start, you want to do health education. What are the Khmer assumptions about life? And how do we find that out? because that's where we have to start. We went to Congo in the early 60s. I had to find out what were the core assumptions about the world, about life, and about God before I could even begin to talk to people about health. And so where does health education start? It starts by listening. All right, now let's say you're planning to go on a short-term mission trip to Uganda. You're here in Louisville or wherever you come from. How can you begin to listen to Uganda now? Can you do that? Well, you know the answer to that question because that's the way preachers always ask questions that they want a particular answer to. Of course you can listen to Ugandans now by reading books about Uganda and about Ugandan culture and about culture in general. So adequate preparation, and we talked about this a bit yesterday, and there's a couple here who do a great deal of, uh, I think you all in India, right? And taking groups into India, you spend, what, 24, 25 hours of preparation of the people who are going before you even leave this country. So you're starting the listening process, and that's very, very important. But that listening has to go all the way down to here. What is the basic understanding of reality of animistic people? But what I want to try and get across to you is this, that here on this level, people have an understanding of the world of spirit, or what we call the transcendent. And that understanding of the transcendent, or the world of spirit, determines all of the other assumptions and then beliefs, values, and behavior. So understanding about God is absolutely crucial to any kind of education that we want to engage in. Be it about health, agriculture, nutrition, uh, morality, behavior, Whatever it is, this is where we have to begin. Uh, I made a visit to the Galmi Hospital in Niger. In fact, my first visit there was in 1989 and spent a week with the village health team of the hospital there. And we had some good conversations and discussed some problems. And then in 1997, I went back for a week, and they had made some very significant progress. And Jeannie Hopfer, who was the head of the community health team at the hospital, took me out to a very, quite a large community, uh, not far from the Gaume Hospital, community of about 2,500 people. And I was impressed by what they were doing. They had a community development committee about 20 people, men and women. 
and they were working on trying to get a better borehole well to get cleaner water. They were concerned about erosion in the heavy, short, heavy rains that come. There's much erosion. They were trying to deal with that. They were trying to improve the fertility of the soil. This is the Sahel, and growing food is a real problem. And they even were working on simple uh, uh, filtering systems for drinking water. So I was quite pleased at what was happening. And we sat down and had a two or three hour conversation with this development committee. Now, of course, I was from the outside. Uh, we couldn't use French, although it is a French-speaking country because they don't handle French very well. So they were speaking Hausa, and I spoke English through an interpreter. The majority of the men and women on this committee were African Muslims. A couple men were Christian. Others were simply uh, traditional tribal people. And I could see they still had a problem with malnutrition because of the difficulties in growing food. And so I said, now, when a child becomes malnourished, what do the parents think about why the child is malnourished? Now, you all would know the answer to that. They knew the answer to that. Your answer is because the child is not getting the proper foods that it needs to grow. Their answer was, it's all the will of Allah. So, here I was. I knew what they needed to know, namely protein and amino acids and where you get the different essential amino acids and how to get a decent diet and, and so forth and so on. Uh, because once they knew that, then they could apply that and their children would be better nourished. But what was their real problem? What was their real need? It was theological. They had a Muslim theology based on fatalism. And yesterday in our small group, we talked about fatalism. Good and evil alike come from Allah. Uh, in India, it would be karma from the Hindu-Buddhist system. In traditional animistic cultures, again, it's fatalism. It all comes from God. So that was their problem, and that was where we had to start. So uh, I said, okay. Well, I, I asked the next question. I said, well, if a child dies of malnutrition, what do they think? That, well, it's just Allah showing them that he is Allah. Fatalism is the number one obstacle to development anywhere in the world. Uh, Haiti. Haiti is still a highly fatalistic culture. And even though Haiti has been churchified, as Dr. Chuck described the other day, or Christianized, fatalism is still the, the default position for most people even believers uh, in the Lord Jesus. And so that's where we have to begin if we're going to make any change. I simply explained to them, okay, I am a physician. I have worked for many, many years here in Africa in what was then called Zaire. Uh, but I said, you know, we doctors, we study the body that God has given us. I actually used the word Allah because that was appropriate in that context. I said, we study the, the body that God has um, given to each of us so that we can know how it grows and what it needs to grow. Now, God has put a particular organ here in our abdomen. We call it the liver. And, of course, they all knew the liver. They slaughter animals and eat liver. And I said, this liver that God has given us 
is the organ that makes the essential building blocks for all of the other tissues in our body, our blood, our bones, our organs, our skin, and so forth. All of the building blocks for the whole body are made in this liver that God has given us. And it's a wonderful organ. And this liver can make almost all of the building blocks that our other tissues need. But there's a few it can't make and that are needed. And so those few that our God-given liver can't make, we have to find in the foods that we eat. And so we have studied the different foods that God has made. Uh, some foods we call cereals, like uh, millet and sorghum and wheat and so on. They contain most of these needed building blocks, but not all of them. They, they're, they're missing a couple. We've also studied the beans and peanuts and uh, uh, what we call the leguminous foods. They likewise contain many of these essential building blocks, but they're missing a couple. But in actual fact, what's missing in the cereals is present in the leguminous foods. And what's missing here is over here. And so we take a cereal and a leguminous food, we put them together, and now all of these essential building blocks that our God-given liver needs are there. Well, what was I doing? What was I teaching them? Nutrition, of course, which they needed to know. But how was I teaching it? This was the foundation. Uh, And they were following and listening. And then when I finished, then they began asking questions. Two days later, Sunday, they had a little chapel in that uh, community. And one of the two Christian men who's been on that committee and in that discussion preached the Sunday morning sermon on what God wants you to feed your children. Uh, Not on what this strange white doctor from Zaire had told them. So here's an extremely... Necessary principle, I have to see which way I go around the podium and where I step. Uh, Fatalism, we've talked about. But I based the reasons for these nutritional inputs on God. I based it on a spiritual authority and not just a scientific authority. Now, the science was there, but the authority that I was using to help them understand it came from God, from here. Uh, Now, where do the laws of nutrition come from? For instance, the fact that cereals are lacking, I forget what, lysine and tryptophan and and leguminous foods are lacking a couple other essential. Uh, Where did those laws come from, that reality come from? I mean, who made peanuts? It wasn't George Washington Carver. (laughs) Who made peanuts? Okay. What does science actually study, whatever the science may be? What do we study scientifically? What God has made. So every law of anatomy, every law of physiology, every law of nutrition, every law of agriculture, of physics, of whatever, has come from God. And if we can orient our teaching Uh, away from just saying this is what you should do to saying this is how God has made us, it makes a world of difference. So that's one illustration. Second illustration, uh, way back in the 60s, in the very first dialogue I had in the community, 
near our hospital in Congo. Uh, we were talking about, or I wanted to talk about sanitation because there was about a 100% intestinal parasite problem. Everybody had worms and consequences of them. And, of course, the understanding of sanitation was poor. So we got to talking first about their understanding of where diseases come from. Uh, we were on this level. Let's see. Let me go on here for you. The science of health. Where do these laws come from? Well, of course, they come from God. And when we can help, when we can base our teaching as this is what God says, and of course that was translated into Allah there, and, uh, but they said, oh, if Allah says it, it must be true. That makes a world of difference. And so here's where we have to get to. And in this discussion in Congo back in the 60s, I knew I had to discover their assumptions about why people get sick before we could deal with anything scientific. And I asked them that same kind of a question, when a child gets sick, what do the parents think? And by the way, that's an indirect question. And it's a question that people can discuss. You're not asking them what they think. If you ask people what they think about where diseases come from, the chances are 99% they've already heard lessons on health, you know, before. They'll give you what they have heard uh, because they assume that's what you want to, 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 to hear. They won't tell you what they really believe. But when you ask an indirect question, what do the parents of a child who gets sick believe? Now they can talk about the beliefs of those parents. And you can be pretty well sure they're actually explaining their own beliefs. And so when I asked that question, when a child gets sick, what do the parents believe? Well, the answer immediately was the uncle has cursed the child. And so we got into a long discussion of their view, their assumptions about disease, why people get sick. And I asked them, why would an uncle curse the child? And they explained, well, things go wrong, and the uncle is upset about something, and he puts a curse on the child. Well, how does he curse the child? What does he do? And they explained, you know, how the curse works, or he makes a, uh, uh, um, something magic, uh, gets powders from bark or leaves or trees and so forth, and, goes, and the child gets sick, that sort of thing. And I said, but okay, the uncle is over here, the child is over here. What goes between the uncle and the child to make the child say, oh, doctor, we don't know. It's all invisible, but that's how it happens. So I said, okay. Uh, I suppose then the parents have to go to the uncle and say, why have you made our uncle sick? And they said, no, no, they can't do that. They have many uncles. <laughs> they got to find out which uncle or which grandparent or who is the person that has made the child sick. Well, you see, here's a fundamental difference between our understanding of disease and the animistic worldview understanding. When we get sick, we say, what's making me sick? Is it H1N1 or is it another virus or uh, is it bad food or what has made me sick? Their question is, who has made me sick? We have the germ theory of disease. Um, they have a personalistic theory of disease. So if we talk to them, start talking to them about parasites, germs, viruses, they don't understand. They have no basis on which they can understand that. No basis on which, what does hand washing have to do with the curse of an uncle? And that, of course, was my problem in that discussion. What does an outhouse, a latrine, have to do if it's the uncle who makes them sick? So we had to work this all the way through 
They have to go to a diviner to find out who is the person who has made the child sick. Then they can go to Uncle Henry or whoever it is and say, why have you made our child sick? And he'll explain something. Well, you haven't respected me or you didn't. You killed an animal and you didn't send me any meat and so forth and so on. Now they've got to satisfy the uncle so that the uncle will take off the curse. So I found that very, very interesting. And quite frankly, I was fascinated by what they were saying. And so I said, okay, the uncle takes off the curse. Now the child gets well. Oh, no, 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 no. Now they can bring the child to you in the hospital so you can treat it. And I said, no, wait a minute. That child's been sick for days while they're going through all of this. And every day is getting worse and worse. Why don't they bring the child to me when the child first gets sick? Then they go through all of this. But in the meantime, I'm treating the child. And now, of course, they knew I was totally ignorant, which was true. As long as the curse is on the child, doctor, your medicines won't work. I said, oh. Uh, And some lights went off in my mind. That's why people come so late to the hospital for treatment. Because they've had to go through all of this before they can come and get freed from the curse. And then they know I can help them. Yes, ma'am. Does someone always admit to having placed a curse on the child? Is someone what? Does someone always end up admitting to placing a curse on the child? Okay. They go to Uncle Henry and say, Uncle Henry, why are you making my child sick? Uncle Henry may not even know the child is sick. But he does know now's my chance to get something out of the father and the mother. And so he'll come up with something. And, of course, the, the problem is, okay, the uncle gets some money or a goat or a chicken out of the parents and takes off the supposed curse he's put on, and they bring the child. I mean, now the child doesn't get well. Say the child has leukemia, for example, and that's a tough one because we can't even do much about that. Now the child is not getting well. What is their assumption? It wasn't Uncle Henry. It must have been Uncle so-and-so. So now they've got to go back to the diviner and uh, repeat the same process. Uh, but there I sat, you see, in that discussion. Here's the personalistic approach to disease based on assumptions that are spiritual, basically. Because that's what sorcery is, using spiritual powers to make people sick. They even use spiritual powers for to prevent disease. They've got their own um, preventive medicine, charms, amulets, fetishes over the door, and so forth. So they have a very logical disease therapeutic system, just like we do except it's based on totally different assumptions than ours. Now, they knew all about latrines. And actually, the people at Galmi knew all about nutrition. They'd heard it over and over again from the, the uh, community health staff at Galmi. Our people had heard it from way back in the days of the Belgians during the colonial era that everybody had to have an outhouse, a latrine. This was nothing new to them, but they had no understanding of why. Because the only education they had received in Congo about latrines was based on science. It had never dealt with their understanding. And so I had to find a link between my assumptions and their assumptions. And it would be nice to take a few minutes to let you discuss that amongst yourselves. We don't have that time. And I sat there clueless. But I did know that God was present. And I simply said, help. And immediately the help came. Because an idea popped into my mind. And I said, oh, isn't that interesting? So I said, I thank them very much for telling me their whole understanding of why people get sick. I said, I find it very helpful. Because now I understand better what's going on in the minds of sick people who come to the hospital. 
But I said, I'm also impressed with the wisdom of your ancestors. Because your ancestors have taught you that one person makes another person sick. And they agreed. Now, let me ask you, can one person actually make another person sick? Of course. They call it sorcery. We call it contagion. The principle is the same. And I said, my ancestors have studied diseases, and you know we have microscopes. We can see invisible stuff and all that sort of thing. And we have come to the conclusion that what your ancestors have taught you is absolutely true. And their eyes literally popped out of their faces. And they stared at me and they said, do you believe that? And I said, yes. Well, I was all prepared to talk to them about the trains. I even had a big flip chart full of pictures about it. And I, so I said, now let me show you how it works. And I brought out the flip chart and we began going through it. The first picture, a little boy going to a bathroom under the mango tree. And the next picture, the rain is coming down. Here's this little brown mound there. And, and you can see through a magnifying glass the eggs of ascaris worms and the little bitty larva of hookworms crawling out of it. And the next picture, along the brown mound has disappeared. It's a few days later. And along comes a second little boy playing in the grass. And the next picture shows him picking up a mango with his dirty fingers. And, of course, the magnifying glass now is here on his fingernails. And here's the eggs of Ascaris. And there's a hookworm larva going into his feet. And the next picture is here the second little boy with a belly full of worms. And so I said, now, who made him sick? Well, they immediately saw the first boy. So I said, who cursed the second boy, well, the first boy. So what is the curse? Going to the bathroom under a mango tree or an avocado tree or whatever kind of tree it might be. So here I was making a link between my understanding of disease, the scientific, and their personalistic understanding of the disease, and the point got across. And, of course, there at Galmi, when I showed them, taught them the, scientific, the science of nutrition, but based on it all coming from God, then we communicated. So, <clears throat> um, let's talk a little bit about nature. I was at a conference in India some years ago, three years ago, actually, and there is a wonderful Indian Christian philosopher and development worker, Vishal Mangalwadi. He's written many books in India. He's a very gifted man. He grew up in uh, a tribal part of uh, northeast India, got his education in India, but he did come to Wheaton and got a uh, doctor's degree in missiology along with his wife, and then returned to India to work with his own people. One day, a group of very poor subsistence farmers came to see him and said, Sir, we struggle. We can hardly make grow enough food to feed our families. Could you come out to our community and and sit down and talk with us and see if you can help us. So he went out to this large town uh, in India and sat with these farmers to look at their situation. And they lived in mud houses with grass roofs and each had just a little plot of land. And they did work hard. They worked very hard trying to grow a few crops and they had a few goats and chickens and so on. But there was quite a wide river went through this town and periodically there would be floods and everything would get swept away including even their houses and they'd have to start all over again from scratch. Well, Dr. Mangalwadi saw on the bank on the other side better houses made out of stone and so forth and he said to them, well, why don't you build houses that are more solid like those? Other? No, no, we can't do that. 
we're low caste people. We wouldn't be permitted to do that. But here in the middle of the river, on a sandy island, was an enormous temple made out of stone. In fact, it's quite a well-known temple in India. And he said, well, what's that temple all about? Oh, that's to the river goddess. Ah, well, what do you do there? Oh, we take sacrifices out uh, to her and we pray to her and we ask for protection and so forth. Yeah, but floods come anyway. Yeah, well, you know, we've done something to displease her. And so we have to go out with more sacrifices and whatever to appease the river goddess. He said, who built that temple? Oh, our ancestors, maybe a thousand years ago. And he said, and yet there have been floods every few years? Yes, and it hasn't destroyed that temple? No, no, your ancestors must have been very, very smart people to build a solid stone temple in the middle of the river that's constantly flooding, and yet there it's still there. Yeah, they said our ancestors were very smart people. He said, well, if they were that smart, why instead of building a temple to the river goddess, why hadn't they built a stone dam to keep the river from flooding? He said their eyes just kind of popped open. They'd never thought of such a thing. And Dr. Mangawadi said to us, he said, that's the difference between the animistic worldview and the biblical worldview. What does God say in his word to us about rivers and nature? What does God say? Take charge. Go back to, and by the way, the most important book in any kind of education, health education, agriculture, whatever, is this. Now, you may not be able to use it in certain contexts. If it's a Muslim context, I mean, you may not be able to have it in your hand. But you've got it here, hopefully. Use it. And say, that, like up there in Niger, I didn't open the Bible when I talked about how God made our physical body, but, you know, it's all biblical. Genesis 1:28. what does it say? And God blessed the man and the woman and said to them, number one, be and, and fill the earth and take charge, have dominion. Now, we were still living in Bristol, Tennessee, when I heard that story, about 10 miles from the South Holston River Dam, the largest earthen dam in the United States. And it's a beautiful spot, and we have picnics up there, and it's near CMDA headquarters and so forth. And it's a marvelous example of the application of Genesis 1.28. All through Tennessee, northern Alabama, western Kentucky, year after year after year, devastating floods. But since 1950, there hadn't been a single flood. There are 52 dams in the Tennessee River system and generating electricity and doing all sorts of things. So you see, here is another major difference between our culture, which is based on that book over there, and tribal, traditional cultures. And it all goes back to assumptions about nature. Nature in an animistic context is violent, chaotic, unpredictable, uncontrollable. All we can do is worship the spiritual powers behind nature and try to appease them. We take charge, and actually we do better than they do. Okay, I'm going to stop there. If you've got questions or uh, comments about this or stories, uh, we've got some time. Now, speak loud. My ears are... Oh, no, no, no. Um, 
Bringing about change down here is a long, long, slow process. Uh, I don't know the follow-up to that conversation. Dr. Mangalwadi didn't tell us. Uh, the purpose of his telling us was simply to explain the fundamental differences in these assumptions and that we've got to get to those assumptions to understand it. And that has to do not only with assumptions about nature, but assumptions about us. Uh, in the discussion I had in Congo back many, many years ago, we did make this link, and they understood then why latrines were so important. But as that conversation proceeded, then an elder said, well, doctor, you know, latrines are okay for you white people. They're not for us Africans. And of course it was the Belgians that had initially made laws about them having latrines. And some of them did have them, others didn't. And so they assumed it was for the white people. And I said, well, why isn't it for you Africans? Our ancestors never had latrines. Now, we were back again at this level. What difference does it make whether the ancestors had latrines or not? Did your grandparents have outhouses? I suspect they did. But supposing they didn't, would that make any difference to you? Would you? No. But it does to an African. Why? And to many Asians and Latin Americans. What, what, what's the role of ancestors in daily life? It's very, very important. We need to understand that. And this is why change is so difficult, because to do something new or different without knowing what the spirits of the ancestors think is dangerous. Because ancestral spirits are still alive. They're what they call the living dead. And th that's why... Constantly, our African people go to the cemetery to consult with the spirits of the ancestors. Now, if you know your scripture well, Deuteronomy chapter 18, very, very clear, God forbids that. But they don't know that. And so they consult their ancestors to find out, should we do it? And this guy was afraid if we decide we're going to have latrines and the ancestors aren't happy, then disaster will come. A certain amount of that kind of thinking is rooted in our culture, especially in the American South. Yeah, okay. We go to seminaries. We go to cemeteries. We revere what our, our ancestral culture tells us, you know, the way the disease is treated. Yeah. In some, in some cultures in the U.S., it's based on what we learned from our grandparents. Yeah. Uh, where does all that come together? Yeah. Sure. Well, there is much of animism that has come into many segments of our culture in this country, partly because of slavery. And those ideas, of course, came with the people whom we stole from Africa and have gotten into many aspects of our culture. And as we're seeing now what's happening through the New Age movement and so forth, we're going way, way back into this nonsense right here in our own culture. And so we need to be very, very clear uh, of our understanding of these things and of God himself and stand up and make it be known. And, okay, question. Yeah. But what happens in the long run? Because even though you they're changing health, their beliefs about it are still based on falsehood, aren't they? Okay. And so what do we do? What needs to be done desperately around the world? Well, it's got to be more than evangelism. 
evangelism explaining to people the way of salvation. And that, of course, is extremely important, but it's got to be more than that. And that's why so little change has occurred around the world. We have got to get this into the worldview of people. And the starting point of Bible study is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Excuse me, that's an incorrect translation. In the beginning Elohim created the heavens. Do you know what Elohim means? Go find out. In Genesis 2, it says, and the Lord God. No, it doesn't say that. It says, Jehovah Elohim said to the man and the woman. What does Jehovah mean? You see, we have a problem right here. Part of it is translation. Why they use the word God, I have no idea. Because that's not Hebrew. God gave us names of himself. He revealed names of himself. We need to know the, under, the meaning of Elohim. Look it up. You can find it. You need to know where did, what does Jehovah mean. Genesis 17.1, where it says, And the Almighty God said to Abram, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be perfect. That isn't what God said. He didn't say, I am the Almighty God, but that's what we read in our Bibles. What did he say? I am am El Shaddai. Anybody know what El Shaddai means? It's a marvelous name. Uh, Look it up. Uh, So, you see, that puts us right back there. We have to know who is our God, Elohim, Jehovah, El Shaddai, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Tzidkenu, and all those sorts of things. God has given us his names and that mean different things so that we can understand him better. And so, to answer your question, that's the starting point in Haiti, in India, in wherever it is, getting people to do a in-depth study of God's word so that they can understand themselves who God is. And then who is man? God created the man and the woman in his image. What does that say about men and women? In Genesis 3, I forget which verse, God said to the woman, Your desire will be toward your husband and he will rule over you. Now what does that say about men and women? Hmm? Do you like that? (laughs) Then why did God say it? This was the consequence of what? Sin. Male domination, which exists in every culture in the world, or almost every culture in the world except biblically-based cultures, is the result of sin. What did God say in Genesis 1? Male and female made he them. Read Darrell Miller's book, Discipling the Nations. And he has another book, and I forget the title, a new book. Um, And he has powerful talks on gender that disturb Indians, Africans, Koreans, Asians deeply because of the deep-seated assumptions all over the world that men are stronger than women. And Darrell Miller says this, and it's, it's amazing. 
you look at demographic data all over the world, you analyze them carefully, there are at least 100 million less women in the world today than there should be. There are 100 million missing women in the world. Why? Because of this, which is the result of sin. So, uh, to be effective in community health or anything else, we have got to understand uh, these basic assumptions. This is why it takes time. This is why it takes study. And you all who are preparing yourselves for your future career, this is where you've got to begin, going to the library, going to Google, going to wherever, studying cultural anthropology, and then studying the particular worldview of the people where you feel God is leading you. And then when you get there, sitting down with them and asking questions. You know, tell me stories from your ancestry, from your traditional times. Listen to their stories. Where did your people come from? Who made your people? What did your ancestors believe about God? Ask them those questions. What did your ancestors believe about morality? Uh, And so forth. Because until you have a, a grasp of what's down here in the people you're working with, you're going to be minimally effective out here. But when you get into this and are able then to bring alongside of their understanding of reality, the biblical understanding of reality, and they understand that what you're saying has really come from Jehovah Elohim, the creator of the heavens and the earth, then change will take place. Okay, here are a few books. Uh, This book, Health, the Bible, and the Church, I wrote 20 years ago, and it's got to be brought up. Well, there's much more I need to put in it, which I will be doing it. Uh, It's about the biblical understanding of health, the secular understanding of health, the radical differences which helps explain a little bit of what's going on in Washington, D.C. today in the health care reform. There's no way Washington's going to make any significant changes uh, because the real problems are down here. But anyway, uh, I've got one copy. Anybody needs it badly, there it is. We wrote this book, um, Let's Build Our Lives, back about 1990. This is the story of community health in Congo in an animistic culture. And a lot of the things I've just been through you are in here. But it's the story of Pastor Simon, who was pastor of a church in a community, and how he used stories, parables, proverbs, and then sat down and dialogued with his people and got them to begin working together amongst themselves and then with others in the community to improve sanitation, water supply, and that sort of thing. There's even a couple chapters in here on AIDS. This book is newer, just a couple years ago, Let's Restore Our Land. And this is Africa's number one problem. And it's a major problem in many other countries, the destruction of the fertility of the soil, the forests, the overgrazing, the overcultivating, of the land everywhere, uh, water sources drying up, uh, and so forth. And what God says about creation, the responsibilities God has given to us to take care of it, and then very simple measures that any small farmer anywhere in the world can do to restore the fertility of the soil of his land, and uh, restoring forests to the the hillsides. Uh, This book is available from ECHO in Florida, uh, echo.org. 
the Let's Build Our Lives is available through CMDA. Uh, one other thing, and I mentioned this yesterday, about whole person care. We do have now a DVD course on how to care for the whole person. Anybody who is interested in that, there are these. And God said, when the time comes to quit, quit. But thank you very much.